from someone that has spent the last however many years dedicated to studying financial history. The thing that does not change since the first stock exchange opened in 1602 in Amsterdam is the power of narrative to drive market returns and prices. Welcome to episode five of the Idea Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Cho. And this episode with Jamie Catherwood was a really fun one for me. Jamie is a vice president at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, a quantitative long-only equity firm. But perhaps even more interestingly, Jamie is the founder of Investor Amnesia LLC, a company that's dedicated to producing educational content on financial history. Investor Amnesia has a weekly newsletter of 15,000 plus subscribers, and it also has monthly web visitors in thousands. Uh, where it features two online courses with lectures from renowned investors such as Mark Andreessen, Jim Chanos, Nal Ferguson, and many more. Part of why this chat was so interesting for me was not only because as kind of a wannabe history finance nerd, it was fun to hear from Jamie's unique knowledge base, but it's also rare to find somebody who has kind of dedicated themselves to educating people on such a fascinating and important topic with finance history. Uh, I personally haven't read a ton of financial history, but in early 2023, I did engage in a learning sprint on the history of money, where I basically read 10 plus books on the history of money. And in digging into financial history, I've always just been fascinated by how much human behavior has not changed over many decades and centuries and millennia. Just reading a few books on financial history teaches you this, and I think it's such a competitive advantage. And that whole thing that history may not repeat, but it sure does rhyme, I think is very true. So anyways, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jamie Catherwood as much as I did. So you know, Jamie, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is like, for me personally, energy allocation of there are certain days where I'm working or I'm interacting with people and I'm trying and have been trying to isolate and spend more time with people that are like giving me energy rather than draining me. And one of the things that I found like most practical um, or effective is finding people that have specific interests that are like actively pursuing those interests. And I feel like with a lot of the work that you've done with Investor Amnesia and even the content that you share on Twitter or your newsletter, like you've carved that out, uh, which is really fascinating to me. So I've listened to a handful of your podcasts and a lot of them tend to be more focused on specific financial history um topics, but I'm also curious to hear more about like your journey into finding your niche and your passion for history. Um, so maybe just like as a starting point, a little bit of background about you, what you currently do in terms of investor amnesia and your work at, at OSAM. Yeah. So uh, first, thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, in terms of my background uh, as it relates to history specifically, uh, I'd say that my family mostly on my dad's side, has always been very uh, historically inclined, I guess. Um, going back generations, we've always had an interest in history and kind of that more uh, side of the brain than the science quant side. <laughs> um, and so from an early age, I was always fascinated by history. I think that people's interest in history is directly correlated to how good or bad their history teachers were in school, because mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of insane to say that you don't like history because really all history is is just everything that's happened before this moment. And so to just say like, I don't like history just makes no sense to me. It's like, really? Just nothing yeah. in the past is interesting to you? All history is is stories and interesting lessons that we can learn from. So I find history just fascinating because a lot of it reads like fiction. It's just almost too crazy to think of and getting back on track. Uh, my family's always been interested in history. And so I grew up kind of with that same level of interest when I was a kid I was fascinated by like knights and medieval stuff and reading about like world war ii etc nerdy stuff um it's also a normal kid you know played sports <laughs> everything like that but uh 
definitely had an early interest in uh, the field of history. And then over the years, uh, I continued loving history. It was always my best subject in school, um, the one I looked forward to having class. And when it came time to apply to university, my dad's English. He's from London. He came over here in the 80s to get his MBA at Columbia and then met my mom. But his philosophy was always, if you are going to go to business school, and that's probably going to happen if you're going into kind of business or finance, then you should do what you're passionate about undergrad, because why study business undergrad if you're going to go get an MBA? These days, obviously, MBA isn't as kind of necessary, so it might be a little outdated, but I definitely agreed with that advice. And it was the kind of green light for me to do history undergrad, which uh, was what I was looking for. And so I ended up applying to all British schools, um, kind of my my goal since I was, I think, like eight or nine was to go to university in London. It's always been my favorite uh, favorite city. And the history of the city being uh, a big uh, reason for that. And so I applied to all British universities, mostly in London, got into King's College London to study history. And so I went over to the UK for three years, got my undergrad, the bachelor's degree there three years because you just specialize in your major. And then... Again, though, I knew I didn't want to go into academia or anything after I graduated. I love history and wanted to study it, but the goal wasn't to then, you know, become an academic historian or anything like that. And so when I was at college, I was trying to figure out kind of what I wanted to do afterwards, whether that be consulting. That was kind of my original interest. And then I can't remember. Oh, my friend, Connor Witt, he recommended some podcasts to me. And one of them was Invest Like the Best, uh, hosted by my now employer, Patrick O'Shaughnessy. And the other was Masters in Business by Barry Ritholtz. And I started listening to those and that kind of ignited my interest for investing. And as a history major, I was not having exposure to kind of investing classes or content because In the UK, again, you only do your major for all three years. So I took only history classes for my entire college degree, which is obviously different than the US approach. But if you know what you love and you just want to do that, it's pretty fantastic, especially if uh, someone that is terrible at things like science. Uh, (laughs) The idea that you don't have to take any core science classes in college is uh, an added blessing. Um, I took economic history courses, which were really interesting. I took one on uh, the German hyperinflation period. So that was uh, really, really fascinating. But graduated, then started working at a institutional investment consultant. Um, it was a division within Arthur J. Gallagher, the massive insurance company that I'm pretty sure is based in your neck of the woods in Chicago or just mm-hmm. outside. But that was uh, really great opportunity because as a history major with a British degree, I knew I wasn't exactly the uh, ideal (laughs) finance applicant. Um, I always thought that rightly or wrongly, my, my resume would at least stand out when you're, you know, rifling through a stack of uh, finance and business majors from, you know, US schools like UVA or, you know, wherever. And so going through like, what is this British degree history major? Like, who's this kid? And so I think it helped me stand out a bit, but getting that first job in finance is definitely a huge step for me. Uh, that was kind of a hard first hurdle. And it was probably the best possible finance job I could have got right out of college as someone without a finance or investing background, because literally all I was doing was reviewing managers, doing due diligence, learning about like asset allocation and stuff. And so for me, I got to just absorb a ton of information by having, you know, on a given day, we could have meetings with a small cap value manager, an international equity manager, emerging markets growth manager. And it just really opened my eyes to all the different uh, kind of styles and geographies and asset classes um, in investing. And so got to learn about private equity, real estate, et cetera. And so it was just kind of a educational course in itself almost in that job. And then while I was there, my same friend Connor told me that I should check out Twitter for networking because I've always been someone that really enjoys networking and meeting people and sharing ideas and kind of building relationships through just chatting. And 
I was using LinkedIn to do that. Big fan of just like cold emailing people to get lunch. I don't do that as much anymore, but when I got out of college, I was blowing people's up, <laughs> blowing people's uh, in mail on LinkedIn up. And then I got into Twitter. My friend Connor, he's into FinTwit. And so I just followed everyone that he was following and kind of got immersed in that world, started becoming a reply guy to just try and get some interactions with people. And I quickly realized that there was a lot of great content being shared on the platform from people like, you know, the guys at Ritholt. Uh, Morgan Housel, et cetera. There's just so much good content out there. And I knew that as someone more recently entering the kind of industry, I probably wasn't going to have any, you know, hot takes or unique insights that all these investing professionals uh, had. And so the niche that I knew that I was passionate about and probably knew more than the average person on Finfoot about was history, given that that's been like my lifelong interest in what I went to school for. And so I had the idea of writing a series. Originally, it was just an idea to write like, I don't know, maybe four or five posts about financial history to kind of merge my two interests and see if anyone would would like that. And I missed the process of researching and writing, which is all you do uh, in a history degree. And so that was kind of my way to scratch that itch again and started writing on Medium. And as it turned out, people really liked financial history content, uh, which was a welcome surprise uh, because I think it was total just chance and luck that the niche that I felt most comfortable and knowledgeable in was also a kind of niche in the input content market, uh, for lack of a better term, that people like all the, you know, bloggers we all read and podcasts we listen to will like, occasionally dip into financial history sometimes. But there was no kind of dedicated only financial history content source or website. And so it was just pure luck, basically, that I didn't really have competition. Uh, my competition, you know, is Nal Ferguson and I'm not competing with him. You know? <laughs> and so I told, I told uh, him one time that when I was trying to get him to do my second online investor amnesia financial history course, which he graciously did, uh, I told him in my kind of pitch to him that I sent uh, trying to convince him to do the course that I was trying to be a poor man's uh, Niall Ferguson. But so I started writing on Medium, the articles were well received. And then on Twitter, my following kept kind of growing. Um, that was in large part due to the fact that in the summer, I first got into Twitter or FinTwit, I think it was 2018. Um, I pulled, emailed Patrick, O'Shaughnessy, I figured out his email address format and basically said to him, look, you don't know me, but when I was in college, the way that I learned about investing was listening to your podcast based on my friend Connor's recommendation. And I just wrote down every term that I didn't know. And I was obsessed with learning about everything related to investing. Um, now it's ironic because I don't listen to that many finance podcasts. I think because I just burned myself out by <laughs> like, you know, how many can I listen to in a day? If I yeah. had free time and was walking, it was like, got to cram in a finance podcast. And so that was really how I learned about investing and learned enough to kind of uh, sneak my way into an investing job out of college. And so I cold emailed him saying all that and essentially saying, I'd love to buy you lunch or dinner kind of as a thank you. And Thankfully, I guess the right email format because he got back to me that same day saying he appreciated the email, et cetera, and that he'd be like really happy to meet for lunch. He didn't know that I lived in DC and OSAM O'Shaughnessy Asset Management is based in Stanford, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. So he, we figured out a date in July and I took the day off work from Gallagher and then got up at like 4 a.m. to drive to Stanford uh, for lunch with Patrick. And Actually, the reason I had to get up so early is after having success with getting Patrick to agree to get lunch, I then told Twitter DM Barry Ritholt uh, to see if he would want to get breakfast that same day. Hmm. Figured, you know, the two podcasts that were influential and best like the best masters in business yeah. got the, got uh, lunch set up with one of those podcast hosts. Like, why not try a go to for two? Thankfully, Barry, also extremely nice and generous, um, agreed to meet for, for breakfast. And so got up early, drove into New York, crashed at a friend's place, got breakfast with Barry, which was incredible. Um, and then he helped me figure out how to get on the met right Metro North train out to Stanford. 
uh, to meet Patrick for lunch and stayed in touch with both of them since. And that summer of 2018, one of my articles, Patrick uh, shared on Twitter and said uh, people should follow Jamie for his financial history content. And my followers jumped from like 200 followers, I think, to like 2,000 literally overnight. Like I woke wow. up with just a, an influencer. It felt like influencer status <laughs> after growing the followers 10x overnight. And from there, it kind of just kept rising. And over time, people kept saying, you know, you should get a website, stop writing on Medium, own your own content. And I was always responding, yeah, I would love to have my own website, but you know how to make one. Because, you know, <laughs> definitely not my skill set. And then one of the nicest guys I've ever met, this guy, Adam Collins, Movement Capital on Twitter. Actually, no, now he's Eversite Wealth. He DM'd me after seeing me respond to someone that I don't know how to make a website, but yeah, I know I need to build one instead of writing on Medium. And he said, you know, I'll build your website for free. And I was wow. like, deal. And so Adam and I started spending hundreds of hours on Zoom. He's based in Mississippi doing the website together. And by together, I mean, I was walking him on Zoom, built the website while I gave him. But I ended up going to Adam's, this is not really relevant, but Adam's just a man. He's actually one of the groomsmen in my wedding. Uh -huh. And I went to his wedding uh, in May, 2022 uh, in Portugal, and then proposed to my wife on that same trip. So love Adam. But started Investor Amnesia, the website, started a newsletter now, the website has grown to also posting my weekly newsletter, also articles. I've launched two online financial history courses, um, the first on bubbles, manias, and fraud, the second on the financial history of empires. And through kind of this financial history niche, I've been very fortunate to meet some people that I really have no, no right to know or meet because of the shared interest in financial history. I think that a major blessing of this kind of niche is that I think just online kind of content creation in general, it just, it creates a warm introduction naturally for a lot of people that again, you wouldn't ever really have a reason or right to meet otherwise, but because you are connecting with someone over a shared interest in something, it's less of the kind of transactional, you know, like, so for example, one of the people is Mark Andreessen, who did my second course on the financial history of empires. We talked about the history of piracy and how that relates to venture capital. It's actually really interesting. But he, I met because he's also a huge fan of history. And so we kind of shared an interest in that. And that's how I got to know him. Otherwise, I would have had no reason to know him. Because, and from his perspective, you know, I'm sure 99% of the people my age who try and get in touch with him are trying to, you know, pitch their startup or something. Whereas having financial history be the kind of uh, mutual common ground that makes those types of conversations and um, like connections much easier and organic because it's not me trying to get something. It's, you know, just let's talk about history. And so with these courses I had Fortunate to have people like Jim Chanos, uh, Mark Andreessen, Niall Ferguson, Tracy Alloway, other great people come on and kind of do these lectures on the uh, aspect of financial history. And that's been great. Had like over a thousand students now in the courses. Wow. And so it's been fun for me to help try and foster kind of a community and a collaboration between the academic financial history community and the professional investing community, because I'm, and this isn't me just thinking this, I've been told this by both is that, especially the academic side is their work tends to stay largely within the academic community. And then, you know, occasionally it'll get picked up or referenced in like a financial times article or something like that. But I like to think of investor amnesia as kind of that bridge between the professional financial services industry and the academic side, because there's so much to learn for each side from the other. And fostering those kind of introductions is one of my kind of favorite parts of doing this investor amnesia stuff, because there are many times where someone will, you know, ping me on Twitter asking if I know about, you know, XYZ financial history topic. And if I don't know enough, to answer it well, then I have this kind of 
network of academic historians that I know well, who I can, you know, then introduce them to. And so then that's the kind of, you know, productive relationship and collaboration that leads to exciting opportunities for both parties. So I really enjoy that. Investor Mutual also has financial history data library um, and a library of old books stretching back to like the 1600s. So that's a very long-winded way of explaining how I got to this point. But the other thing I forgot to mention is that I ended up now working at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, so for Patrick, um, I think like two years after starting on FinTwit, everything kind of came full circle. Wow. I mean, it's pretty incredible. And I have to imagine even in like you explaining that story and this series of like successive fortunate outcomes that ended up kind of like propelling you into very interesting connections and opportunities to create something pretty unique in investor amnesia in the course that you put together. Like it has to be pretty surprising to you. I'm curious just in terms of how much of it you attribute to um, good fortune and, and luck. And also like you you created a lot of the early opportunities for yourself by just, you know, reaching out. Was there any expectation or sense of, hey, I think there are possibilities if I continue to foster these relationships? Or was most of it just a genuine curiosity of like reaching out to these people and having conversations that kind of transferred into these fortuitous outcomes? I think that it's probably somewhere in the middle. I mean, obviously if I'm trying to, you know, establish like a connection with someone like Mark Andreessen or something. I'm not doing it because I want to then one day, you know, create a startup and then like, then I'll know Mark Andreessen. So that'll help me. And I'm looking, I'm not looking to get something out of these connections where it's like something tangible that I'm trying to get like a transaction. But I obviously know that by establishing relationships with these type of well-known people and only being able to do so through kind of this financial history content, I know that that'll be beneficial. And so definitely at the beginning, I was trying to just network my way into circles and groups that I wouldn't have a business interacting with um, otherwise. And it was something where my approach was always, I don't know, I guess taking a step back, I've never really had a problem with reaching out to people that I know I shouldn't like really be taking their time you know (laughs) because from my perspective the worst they can say is no and that doesn't have any impact on my life (laughs) you know if i cold dm some big name asking if they would ever consider like having a 30-minute phone call or something if they say no or don't respond like my life is the same as it was before i messaged them so why would i not just try pinging these people i definitely leverage the fact also that I was young and just entering the industry. And so I do less of that now. But when I was originally starting, I was like, I don't know, 22. And so maybe even 21. And so at that age, kind of people are much more willing to take the time to speak with you if you're polite about it, because they remember being in your shoes when they were young, trying to you know find their way in the industry and talk with people to get advice, et cetera. And so understanding that, I leveraged that while I had that kind of uh, narrative attached to me. And I would say the successes are, I think, a result of me just, like if you had open direct messages on Twitter (laughs) and you were interesting, best believe I slid into them (laughs) during that period. Yeah, Uh, And it led to a lot of great relationships. And so I think it's, a combination of being willing to do that. And I mean, I used to have like on my daily checklist, you know, like message three people, like it would just be like that, like rinse and repeat each day. I was just always having phone calls with strangers from FinTwit. And those lead to other conversations and like interesting opportunities and just creating your own luck kind of in that sense by just generating opportunities through curiosity and kind of learning in public. But also, obviously, none of this would happen if the people I was reaching out to weren't extremely generous with their time and being willing to chat with me. So I'd say the bulk of the success is entirely due to those people kind of paying it back. Um, And so not that I've achieved their status yet, but I uh, always make a point if someone reaches out to me to, you know, hop on the phone because 
uh, I feel like I'm going to get hit by a bus or something if I don't <laughs> repay that yeah. karma. Uh, I also enjoy doing that, but having been the recipient of so much generosity from kind of more established people in the industry when I was new, I always want to pay that back. But so I'd say it's a mix of being willing to just go out there and cold message people and those people's willingness to meet with me. A hundred percent. One of um one of the things that I often think about is the saying a rising tide lifts all boats and just the importance of positioning specifically because I've seen a handful of Stanford colleagues that had gone on to graduate and some of them are brilliant, but I sometimes wonder if they have positioned themselves in the wrong way in terms of the industry that they're in or the company that they choose to work for and them getting the responsibility and the respect and notoriety that I think they're, they're deserving of. And then other people who maybe they're not nearly as talented um, or ambitious, but they found themselves in a very fortunate position where they're exposed to whether it is like virality um, or just interesting connections and opportunities. And I feel like now I'm seeing there's like tons of arbitrage opportunity for people if they were to just kind of reposition themselves or think a little bit more high level about like their activity on social media and stuff like that, of just how different of a world it makes. And I feel like you have like a first seat of, of seeing that from you know a first person experience yeah it's i mean like the amount of people i've told to use twitter and they haven't just it frustrates me to no end because <laughs> like i was just saying when people you know younger people a lot of times still in college or now that i'm a little bit older graduated and we're in the position that i was in i tell them to get on twitter use it and they'll join for like a week and then they'll post a couple like Wall Street Journal links that everyone already has a subscription to. Yeah. And they kind of give up because they don't have like 10,000 followers yet. <laughs> it just frustrates me because it's like such a, such a powerful platform for career progression and networking that people don't, I think obviously people are now starting to utilize it even more, but it's just such a no brainer, but it does sound always weird when someone tells you to use Twitter to network. And so, yeah, I would say Twitter is a large part of the um, kind of networking success. But then I also think that to your point about positioning there, I think the reason that my cold outreach often worked is that my approach was be aggressively polite. <laughs> and I always gave the person I was cold messaging the out. So. I've had a couple people over the years like DM me wanting to talk, but mm -hmm. they will reach out in a very kind of presumptuous manner. Like I need to talk to them, uh, you know, it'll, or just be like, Hey, let's talk on Thursday. One guy said about my business opportunity is like, no, <laughs> why <laughs> did you think that was going to work? <laughs> it's just so rude. <laughs> yeah. And so whenever I message people, I would send them kind of long messages playing, you know, breaking in the industry would love to learn more and get your advice and particularly interested and insert whatever they're working on. But then also I would always hammer home multiple times. I understand you're extremely busy uh, and I'm just some like random kid on the internet. And so I totally understand if you don't have any time and uh, don't expect to hear back from you, but at the very least, thank you so much for taking the time to read my message. And I, there I'd have to think, honestly, there were very, I can't even remember off the top of my head examples of people that did not respond to like those messages. It doesn't mean I always talk to them, but if you approach it in that manner, I think where, again, you're making it clear that you don't want anything. You just like the only thing you want is to talk to them yep. and you give them the out that they don't have to feel bad about not reacting. I think people appreciate that because honestly, obviously some people really don't have time to talk to you. <laughs> um, and so just doing that, I think helps. And so I think there's definitely an art to how you do the cold outreach because it can be, it can come off transactional or organic. Um, and I think just finding that balance is what can kind of supercharge networking abilities. Michael Batnick at uh, Ritholtz wrote an article once where he said that, uh, no one toes the line better between annoying and persistent than me, which I thought was <laughs> a great line. I love Michael, but uh, yeah, it's never, 
I never would say, you know, like, hey, you said we were going to talk this day, you know, like, what the hell? But it's just yeah. like, hey, are we still going to talk? And it's politely just keeping things moving uh, and towing the line of annoyance, but never crossing it. 100%. What What about with the work that you do at OSAM in terms of does that role and responsibility have overlap with the type of finance work you do, or is it pretty distinct? No, there definitely there's definitely overlap. I'm a big believer in. I mean, it's especially true, obviously, for more kind of humanities subjects like history. But what you major in, if you're in one of those kind of majors, I think is much more about the skill set that you acquire rather than the knowledge. Obviously, history there's a lot of important knowledge there, but in terms of transitioning those skills and that knowledge set to the professional world. I think that what history teaches you is how to communicate, which I think is becoming even more important, especially as kind of innovations in software and technology kind of commoditize a lot of pieces of information or like skills. Like, I mean, ChatGPT, like code interpreter, you know, how long is it going to be before that can do a lot of the coding stuff that you previously would have hired a coder for, you know? Yep. And so I think. That the ability to communicate, I'm not going to focus on how ChatGPT can also write for you. Uh, <laughs> but I think that just the general skill set that history teaches you of taking a lot of different sources and materials, you know, primary sources from the 17th century, but also secondary sources by modern academics, and taking all of that, parsing out what's important, what's not, and then turning that into your own argument and thesis, and then synthesizing all that into a cohesive persuasive and clear argument in, you know, 10 page paper or something is a really important skill set. And so at O'Shaughnessy, I basically feel like I'm doing what I did in my history major, but just with different inputs. So instead mm -hmm. of reading 18th century sources uh, and like JSTOR history articles, now I am using factor research and, you know, that type of stuff to formulate my content. And so it's still the same skill set. Take a bunch of information and data, parse out what's important, distill it down into something that we want to communicate to clients, prospects, or just general kind of thought leadership content and publish articles, et cetera. And so history, I think, has been invaluable to me in terms of teaching me how to communicate because I mean, that's essentially what businesses is just convincing people to buy your product or use your services. And so whether that's helping advisors and their end clients understand maybe a more complicated, because O'Shaughnessy is a quantitative investment manager, it's easy to get confused, especially if, you know, an advisor client is trying to communicate to their end client, like why one of our strategies would be outperforming or underperforming. And because it's quantitatively based, that can be kind of confusing for someone that might not be as interested in markets. And so helping advisors communicate our process to their end clients in a way that's more easy, in a way that's easier to understand um, is a really, I think, important skill and area of finance that a history background kind of lends itself to. Yeah. It's funny because one of the things that I had initially regretted when I had um, graduated from Stanford in 2019 was I studied econ and I immediately after graduating, like half of the colleagues that I graduated with were computer science majors. And I saw like one, so much opportunity that they have, whether it was landing a cushy job at like one of the big tech companies um, or starting their own startup and the VC environment being very accommodative to their fundraising efforts, right? Or even the opportunity to like go completely independent and uh, work as like an independent consultant uh, or develop your own programs that you could then scale. The, the fact that like the marginal cost of distribution for developing software um, was just so low. I, I had initial regrets in the first couple of years. Um, but then more recently I was reflecting on it and like, obviously I'm very appreciative of my studying econ because of a purely interest perspective, but also I think there are very big practical applications as well. But then I began to think about it more and it seems like 
a lot of the technical developments with AI and some of the computing software is making some of the like tedious computing computerized kind of thinking or mindset less important. Um, and at the same time, the more I'm looking around, whether it's within my own company and leadership decisions or the big challenges that a lot of industries face, it's usually like these people that can explain complex topics and pull out the gist and then distribute that information to a, a much broader group, right? And it that skill is like so transferable. And so one of the things that surprises me is that at most, I feel like U.S. universities, like marketing or communications, like these are considered like bullshit majors that like not that smart people do, but they're, if you can tap into them and really understand them and use those tools effectively, they are perhaps the most transferable in high demand skill that exists. And so that's something I'm thinking a lot more about is like, how do I improve my communication via, um, you know, person to person interaction, but also in writing. And I feel like your point hits on that pretty well in terms of even with what you're doing at OSAM. Yeah. I mean, I, from someone that has spent the last however many years dedicated to studying financial history, the thing that does not change since the first stock exchange opened in 1602 in Amsterdam is the power of narrative to drive market returns and prices. Because, I mean, it's just really remarkable. People are probably tired of hearing me talk about it, but there is a book that was published in 1688 by this guy, Joseph de la Vega, it's called Confusions, uh, Day Confusions. And it's, if you go to investoramnesia.com and you click on the library, you can find a fully digitized version. It's the first book, top left corner. And it's the first behavioral finance book ever published. And it's short, it's like, I don't know, 50 pages. And it's a conversation between, like the book is styled as a conversation between a Dutch East India company investor um, a merchant and a philosopher. And essentially the, the Dutch East India Company investor is explaining to the business merchant and the philosopher how markets work and what the stock market is, how investing works. And it's a great insight into how people traded and invested um, at that time. It goes into kind of the actual logistics and operations on the exchange. Like one interesting thing is that uh, when they were doing transactions, I think is that like people that wanted to sell would hold out their hands. And then if a buyer wanted to buy shares from that person, they would go and like slap their hands. <laughs> and so I don't know, there's a lot of interesting quirks, but one of the, the other kind of part of the book is talking about the behavioral component and human nature. And I cannot stress this enough. It is exactly the same problems and issues that we you know, exhibit today to a T. Like there is not, oh, a little bit the same. It's like exactly the same. And so it's just a testament to the fact that clearly we're never going to learn or conquer our human nature because for 400 years, we've had endless examples of, whoa, exciting new technology. Everyone rushes in to buy anything related to it. And then some of the companies are quality companies and make a lot of money, which just then creates FOMO and more people hurt in. And then you get a bubble and crazy prices and then it crashes. And then we say, oh, that was insane. Like, we'll not do that again. And then a new technology comes out the next year. And then the same thing happens. And it's just, yeah. I mean, just during COVID, we saw NFTs, facts, you know, like <laughs> meme stocks, all these mm -hmm. things are the same exact phenomenon. And they're the same ones that have been happening for 400 years. And so I think so Jim O'Shaughnessy, uh, who founded O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, retired at the end of last year, uh, COVID years, can't keep track of time anymore, what year is what. <laughs> but uh, he always says that uh, human nature is the last sustainable arbitrage because, you know, markets change. How we invest has changed dramatically since, you know, slapping hands on the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. But the, the people that are executing those trades our brain and wiring has not changed since 1602. And right. so understanding that, it really is something that's not going to be arbitraged away because we just literally do not learn. That's why my company and website is named Investor Amnesia because we do not learn from history. And so I find that fascinating. And I think it's, yeah, a testament to just how little 
things change because we're making the same mistake. One of my favorite examples is from that book in 1688, the author writes about how one of the, the tricks that um, big speculators would uh, implement would be writing down on a slip of paper, like a massive purchase order for East India Company shares. And then they would accidentally, uh, air quotes, leave it on the ground, like, oh, drop it, knowing that some day trader, like retail investor would see the well-known big time speculator, mm -hmm. drop that piece of paper, sprint over, pick it up, thinking he found like a gold mine, like, oh my God, I know that this guy is about to purchase, you know, a thousand shares of East India company stock. So now I'm going to go buy it. And the, the big speculator will know that he's going to do that and knows that that guy that found the piece of paper will go tell all his trading buddies, like, guys, look, we all got to go buy East India Company stock, push up the price. And then, of course, the, the big speculator just dumps out of its position <laughs> and leaves them holding the bag. And 200 years later, notorious robber baron and market manipulator uh, Daniel Drew did the exact same trick in mm. New York clubs near Wall Street where he called it the handkerchief trick, but he would go into one of these clubs uh, where people would be drinking after trading hours or whatever. And as he would leave the bar, he would take out his handkerchief and mop his brow and a piece of paper from the handkerchief would fall onto the floor. And then sure enough, all these people would go pick up the paper and the exact same thing would happen and he would dump out of his position and they would lose money and he would profit. And it's just the most stark example to me of how we never change because it's the same stupid trick that investors have been using for hundreds of years and people are just still falling for it. And today, obviously, people aren't, you know, trying to pick up pieces of paper to get their trading insights, but we just have different forms of that same trick now where whether it's nefariously or not, people love to trade based off what big time famous traders are doing. And so there are examples uh, that we don't have to go into, but and name names, but of people, you know, going on CNBC and talking up a stock. And then you find out that their fund has been selling that stock. It's just the same thing that's been happening for 400 years, but people love to believe the narrative and the story. And if something confirms that, like them discovering something, they don't want to believe that it's a fake you know, stock tip or a fake piece of actionable information. And so they're going to trade on it and be excited uh, because they want to get rich. And human nature is wanting to get rich without putting in the work. And so people are much more willing to kind of suspend. Jim Chanos always talks about how bull markets suspend people's uh, sense of disbelief. People are much more willing to buy into something if times are good because they don't want to be shown why it's bad. Mm. Uh, he also likes to say that the a stock price is the best prosecutor and the best defendant for management because if a stock price is good, people aren't going to complain because why would they want to find problems with an investment that's making them a ton of money? And so sketchy dealings and, you know, things that should be affecting the stock price negatively are kind of swept under the rug because people don't want to question it because that would stop them making money and mean that all comes crashing down. Whereas when a stock is really losing money and just in free fall, that's when people tend to start really pouring over, you know, the company's balance sheets and financial statements to try and find flaws because suddenly they're pissed, you know, why am I losing so much money? And so that's why you tend to see throughout history that the fraud cycle lags the market cycle because it's not until people start losing money that then there's a lot of scrutiny on the investments that they're holding. And so whether it be Enron happening after the 2001 um, dot-com bubble crash or uh, Bernie Madoff after 2008, a lot of these things, same during COVID, all of those um, kind of frauds like Wirecard, et cetera, they all let me get the out of the room. <laughs> no worries. You just tend to see that a lot of these frauds get exposed after a crash. And again, it ties back to human nature and a problem that has gone on for hundreds of years. Does it uh it has to surprise you to some extent? Like when I think about let's say reliable 
advantages or edges that a person can develop for themselves. Like one thing is, let's say in a professional atmosphere, is like just having a better attitude. It's hard to work with people that have poor attitudes and having a better attitude is just like an easy competitive advantage that you can, that's in your control, right? Or there's uh, something like um, you can just work harder than the next person, right? If you, if you spend more hours at it, then, you know, you're, you'll, you'll reap the rewards. And then there's things that are out of your control, like whether it's your personality or your degree of intellect, right? Like you can't really do too much about that, but in the camp of things that you can control, one of the things that's very surprising is that like just reading history is a huge competitive edge. It seems like, and maybe the interesting thing in, in terms of your story that you shared was that when you stepped into finance, Twitter, there was a huge appetite for financial history. And yet on the supply side, in terms of people, you know, talking about things that have happened in the past, there's just very little supply. Uh, did that, did that surprise you at all? And like, you know, do you, do you feel the same in terms of those observations? Yeah, that's interesting. I've actually never thought about it that way. Uh, it is kind of, I guess, a, a funny irony and a testament to the fact that we don't learn from history. <laughs> yeah. Even yeah. though everyone enjoys reading about it and there's still not kind of a go-to story. Obviously there are, I don't want to act like I'm the only person in the world that's uh, <laughs> writing and posting about financial history, but in terms of FinQuit, yeah, that, that's an interesting observation. I hadn't considered it from that angle before. Yeah. Well, I mean, even at when I studied economics, uh, a lot of it was developing technical skill sets or understanding the the mathematics or ideas behind the newest, greatest theories that currently exist, right? And very little was, you know, a course on the history of economics, right? Like who the major thinkers were and what they thought. It was mostly just looking at their output and people telling you whether it was correct or, or not correct. Um, yeah. And so it's it's pretty incredible in terms of what you've been able to put together with a course and you have a handful of A-list investors and economics and financial thinkers. I guess it's a testament to the unlocking of what technology makes possible uh, because you'd never really be able to take a, a financial course in person with the you know level of intelligence that you kind of put together. Maybe Maybe the final question I'll ask is just in terms of how studying history has had an impact on how you invest. It's funny because I, even though I had spent time in finance, a lot of my investing is just very basic, like buy and holds, mostly ETFs. And I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, markets and what they're doing and, and all this stuff, mostly because it's fun and it's interesting. And I feel like I'm more informed about how the world works. Uh, but in terms of like my investing behavior, it hasn't changed much for you with studying, you know, finance history, has there been impact in terms of your investing style or approach? So I guess I'm a little bit in the same camp as you. Working at OSAM, we have rules against buying and selling individual stocks. And so I can't really get that interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I would say overall, it definitely is studying history definitely just gives you more perspective in terms of being much more cautious whenever there's the next hot thing that everyone's excited about. You can be the fun guy at the party, <laughs> a little more wary of what everyone's excited about. And that doesn't mean obviously that it's correct each time, you know, that something is uh, stayed steered clear of that everyone's excited about. But when you've read hundreds of examples of some new stock or industry or innovation in history being the thing that's going to change the world forever or markets, and then it turns out to not, it's, it's much easier to not get swept away with like a mania because you've just seen so many similar examples in history. And so I think that's how history can really benefit investors is just giving that kind of cautious optimism and being a little more apprehensive about a little more, I guess, uh, skeptical of flashy and exciting narrative. And so I think it's most beneficial in that way, but also just seeing how previous cycles have played out. I interviewed this guy uh, that some of your listeners may know, Harris Kupperman, uh, goes by Cuppy on mm -hmm. Twitter um, probably a month ago. And he runs his own hedge fund, uh, but he was also a history major. And he talked a lot about how he views history as his kind of main competitive edge because 
so much of his investing is based off of um, industry cycles. And the way you understand that is by studying the history of an industry cycle. And so that is a more kind of, I guess, practical application of history. But yeah, I can't say it's uh, impacted too much of my investing just because of the kind of compliance rules around what I can invest in. But I also do want to make clear that I am not talking about all this history uh, stuff and getting swept away in manias as like, you know, the invincible guy that just never gets swept away by things because <laughs> this guy bought movie pass stock in like my first year out of college. And I was convinced <laughs> that that was going to rip because I can't remember the guy's name now, but um, whoever the CEO was, he was like the president of Redbox, the you know movie, those kiosks that were big yep. back in the day. And he was also at Netflix at like the the start. I'm sure it's one of those things where he was like at Netflix, but not in an important role. I don't remember at this point, but it just seemed like such a great idea, even though the economics made no sense. It was like they would buy tickets from the movie theaters for 20 bucks and then sell it to you for a monthly membership of $9. (laughs) But then, you know, they kept saying they would make it up through partnerships, whatever. But there was, like a week long period, I remember where I bought, you know, nothing crazy. I was just out of college. So I think I owned like 20 shares or something at like $8 a share. But there was a week where every day I logged into E-Trade and my investment was up like 40%. <laughs> and I just thought investing is so easy. Uh, and then obviously <laughs> yeah. it cracked back down. I got out at a profit, but I think, I don't even know. Since then, it was trading at like a penny uh on the exchange and they've had to do multiple like reverse stock splits of just ridiculous you know like reverse thousand to one <laughs> stock splits just to stay on the exchange and so i 100 percent bought into the this is going to bring people back to movie theaters you know it's going to be like the you know the resurgence of the theater but also uh utilize like software and technology and partnerships with the theaters and this guy used to be at Netflix, like he knows the industry and totally got swept away and still made money, but was a terrible investment. Um, and so I am definitely not immune to the the problems I've been talking yeah. about. Well, that that is one of, at least in psychology, one of the things that's incredibly humbling is I'm a big fan of psychology and human behavior and you learn about all of these biases. And then you go on to read about like people that are informed of these biases still make the same errors even though they they know that these biases exist you know it's like the the whole above average effect of like if you're rating yourself in terms of your driving ability right and it's like somebody tells you beforehand hey there's this thing called the above average effect and people always tend to rate themselves higher than the average and obviously statistically that can't work and even with that knowledge they still rate themselves highly you know that's this thing that like scares me a lot whether it's in investing or psychology related is i love to learn this stuff because one, like I'm curious and two, I do think I'm getting something out of it, but in terms of it translating to action, it's like, it's very difficult, you know? Yeah. That's why going back to Jim's line about human nature being like the last sustainable edge, the reason that he approached investing from a quantitative standpoint is you take out that human element. Like if you do the research to find, you know, what factors, what the characteristics of a stock lead historically to outperformance or underperformance, and then you create a strategy that avoids the characteristics of stocks that have historically led to underperformance, and then overweight the ones that have the positive traits, and then you just automate it. You don't let the human nature that you know gets in the way of good decision-making basically, you know, fuck up your portfolio, (laughs) crudest way to put it. But um, so that is that's why I kind of find the quant approach interesting is because, and that's something that has happened throughout history forever. Like the first mutual fund was opened in 1774 and it was in reaction to a big stock market crash in, in Holland. And this Dutch broker, Abraham Van Ketwich thought there's no real way for, you know, a smaller investor to get diversified um, market exposure. Mm-hmm. And so he created uh, an equal weighted now it would be like a passive bond fund and it had 50 different types of like fixed income investments and 
uh, investors could purchase shares with mutual fund. Um, but that was an early way the of sorry in that fund one of the quirks was that there were three portfolio managers but before they like issued shares of the fund they put in their prospectus like exactly what investments they were going to make and hold in the fund and that was going to be like a fixed list so there wasn't going to be really active management and to prevent themselves from making any like emotional or reactive investment decisions they locked all of the bond certificates in an iron chest with three locks on it for the three portfolio managers. And so for anybody to, like for any trade to happen, all mm -hmm. three managers would have to come in with their key, unlock wow. the chest, and then take the security out to sell it. You couldn't just, you know, go on a, on a dime and sell a bunch of stuff because you're freaking out about, you know, the investment having or returns or something. After the 29 crash, there was a big movement towards a vehicle called fixed trust, which was a very similar uh, kind of approach where all these trusts essentially launched passive index funds um, in the US and in the UK. And they were in a direct reaction to retail investors' anger at active management and the trust managers that they had given their, their savings to with the understanding or belief that you guys are professional money managers. And so should something like the 29 crash happen, you would be able to avoid that because that's why we're paying you fees is to be better and more informed than us about investing. And you didn't, and you lost all our money. And so um, there's this, these great economist articles from 1931, 1932, talking about how fixed trusts were created to take the human element out of investing. And so uh, I find that stuff fascinating because wow. again, it's just trying to accomplish the same goal for hundreds of years. The whole, the whole uh, treasury locking mechanism r reminds me now of like the multi-sig uh, stuff that's going <laughs> on in the crypto space. Um, yeah. But no, it's, it's incredible. Uh, I realize we're running here on time and it's funny because I've, I, I wanted to dig in into your background and and I, I was really appreciative of the fact that I could hear it, but I realized there's so much stuff that uh, in terms of specific financial history lessons and things like that, that we didn't cover. So if you're open to it in the future, uh, coming back on and having another chat, uh, we'd love to yeah. do Yeah, let's get a part two going. Yeah, 100%. All right, Jamie. Well, any, um, I guess in terms of people listening that might be interested in checking out your work, where is the the best place to point them to? Uh, so on Twitter, I'm Investor Amnesia, and my website is InvestorAmnesia.com. Um, there you can sign up for my newsletter. There's now, as of three weeks ago, a new Wednesday newsletter that I'm sending out called Market Memoirs, which is much more short form, so it's kind of interesting charts uh, with a little description and then a couple snippets um, from these old old sources that I enjoy reading through uh, and. Subscribers get to benefit from just having it served up to them instead of having to dig through boring old uh, archives. Yeah. Uh, and then I have a Sunday read newsletter, which goes a little more in depth. And I link to academic papers and other history articles uh, with a summary and then kind of an introduction on the historical elements to modern market events and themes. So you can sign up for that at investoramnesia.com. And you can also find the data library. There's like over a hundred data sources with things like stock returns for all listings on the New York Stock Exchange from like, I don't know, 1815 to 1925. Like, so if you're someone that wants to see how various railroad stocks did during the Civil War, like you can go get that for free. Um, and then there's also the, the archive of like historical books and sources. But if you're interested in taking the courses, if you enter subscriber 20 at check out, you can get 20% off of those. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I am, I'm always interested in speaking to people that are operating in a very different world and have a different perspective just based on what they're studying or reading and your lens uh, with your financial history as a strong piece of your background is a really fun one to bounce off of. So I appreciate you again, coming on and being a guest and look forward to hopefully doing it again soon. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. This has been a ton of fun and uh, hope your listeners enjoy it.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Idea Exchange Podcast. For more information on the podcast and more information about myself, you can visit tylercho.com. I also send out a monthly newsletter to friends, family, and colleagues where I essentially share the best ideas that I came across from that month, whether it was books that I've been reading, podcasts that I've been listening to, uh, or just conversations that I've been having. So feel free to subscribe on the homepage of my personal website. Until next time.